Pushkin. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you for being here. This week on the podcast, we have legendary actor Philip Baker Hall. Considering the unusual length and specialness of this episode, I'm going to keep my intro fairly brief. If you've watched movies from the 1970s onward, you've seen or heard Philip Baker Hall before. In a career that spans across decades and mediums, Hall has produced some of my favorite work of the 20th and 21st century. He received his big on-screen break in 1984 when Robert Altman decided to take a play called Secret Honor and make it a film. The project centers around Hall as a dejected President Richard Nixon. It's a profoundly brilliant piece of acting as Hall plays a disgraced president in soliloquy, talking aloud to himself about his forthcoming resignation. There are dozens of roles that came before this one, and dozens that came after. But Hall's resurgence came when a young Paul Thomas Anderson took an interest in him. From 1993 to 1999, Philip appeared in each of Anderson's movies, from Cigarettes and Coffee to Magnolia. From there, he's worked with a short list of visionaries including David Fincher, Michael Mann, Larry David, and many more. Philip continues to work in 2017. He had two movies at Sundance, He has a part in an HBO series with the Duplass brothers coming up. He did a voice in BoJack Horseman last year. I don't know how someone at 85 could be so prolific. In fact, he believes he may be the only working actor who uses an oxygen tank. You'll hear it a little bit humming in the background during this conversation. 
it was an unprecedented talk in part because he doesn't do many interviews uh, and also in part because he invited me into his home in L.A. to do it. The conversation is a sprawling overview of his career, but also his life. Philip really is a classic storyteller. You ask him one thing, and he goes on for about a thousand eloquent words about something else. We talk about his childhood in the 1930s and 40s, working in New York City on stage, behind the scenes with Paul Thomas Anderson and all the infighting that happened there, his ongoing feud with Robert Altman, which I had no idea about, uh, and, and really a lot more. This conversation was about two hours and 40 minutes of audio, which Nora brilliantly cobbled down into something uh, a little more listenable and downloadable. Uh, we will put out the full-length conversation in time for those who just want to listen to the raw two hours and 40-plus minutes. I have to say one thing before you listen to this is that I moved to L.A. in August, and something I noticed almost immediately upon moving here is that people move very quickly. And by that I mean even in conversations with people, um, there's not a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of looking around to see who you may want to talk to, who you should be talking to. Focus is hard. Time seems particularly fleeting. And um, there was something very strange in the afternoon in which I went to Philip's house. I think we ended up talking... I, I think I ended up being there for about four or five hours. It just kept going before and after. Time was rendered irrelevant just for a little bit. Anyway, all of this is a long-winded way of saying I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. It means a lot to me, and I know it meant a lot to Philip. So, finally, here is Philip Pickerhall. Hi. Uh, we can pretend like we haven't been talking for the last 20 right. minutes now. Right. <laughs> um, so here's something. When I asked to Chris to do the interview, she made note that you don't do many interviews. It's not something, she said, it doesn't seem like something you like to do. Is there a reason for that? I don't hate doing interviews. And I don't, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not out looking to do inter- interviews. Uh I'm not like saying if I could just do more interviews, my life would be complete. It would finally be uh, complete. We've been waiting for something to right. make your life complete, Philip. But I've never, uh, I've never said you know I can't stay in one more interview, and like I refuse to. Do, I've, I've never taken any I'm really tough position on interviews. Mm-hmm. I only mention this not for semantics' sake, but right. um, in doing research, there's not a lot out there. I, there's not you've done interviews certainly, but they're often very film focused to that movie that's coming out in the that's next true. week. There's not a lot out there about you. Well, I've done a lot, um, but they're often related specifically right. to a movie that may be coming out or that just came out. Just trying to think, it's just kind of general interviews. There've been there have been a few. I can't remember. You I did remember. one on NPR that was uh, not. Entirely film-focused, certainly. Oh, the NPR interview. Yeah, I listened to that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. But, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm curious if we can start. 1931, Ohio. <laughs> you are born in, was, into yeah. this world. Yes. Um, in Toledo. In Ohio. Toledo. Okay, I know nothing yeah. about Toledo at all. Yeah. Good, good place? Yeah, well, Toledo is, um, 
45 miles from Detroit. And it's on the lake. It's on Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. So it's a seaport. Uh, a lake port. And it became a seaport during the time when I was going, I think, to high school because of the St. Lawrence Seaway. But then what happened was is they started making boats larger than what was anticipated when they cut the canal through the St. Lawrence Seaway Mm. to make it bigger. And suddenly it wasn't big enough anymore. And it's the kind of project that for all kinds of reasons, political and geographic and financial, was not going to get done a second time. Right. So what did your parents do? My, uh, my mother went to high school, uh, to a private high school, actually, uh, and she was a, uh, she was a, a violin um, student, and, and my mother's name was MacDonald, um, and her father uh, was uh, uh, an immigrant from Scotland, as far as we know. My mother claims that she saw a man when she was 12 years old at school who came up to the fence and said, I'm your father, and had a conversation with him and had not seen him before and had not seen him since. What did your father do? My father uh, was born in Montgomery, Alabama. He was actually born in in what was a plantation, actually, uh, one of 11 children. Now, among those 11 children, my father was, I think he was the youngest one. A couple of them died, which was pretty common in those days. And uh, for whatever reason, not altogether clear to me, my father quit school at the age, in the fifth grade. He did not go beyond the fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize, probably until I was in college, that he was not literate. Later began to read, though, or maybe teach himself or try to learn. Did you gravitate towards one parent? Well, okay, let me, let me go back to my father. Just to show. My father um, and his older brother, my father was William Alexander Hall. His brother was James Madison Hall. Hmm. Uh, very common on these... Uh, Presidential names. Well, well, the Confederacy names. Anyway, he, they... They wanted to study vulcanizing at the vulcanizing school, school at the it. Akron rubber plant in Akron, Ohio. So they prevailed on their father to give them money. He gave them the money. And they, and they bought motorcycles, and they went off on motorcycles from Montgomery to, Ohio. to Akron, Ohio, to study at the vulcanizing school in Akron. Mm. After they got their diploma and understood about vulcanizing, somehow the word got out that Toledo would be a good place to open a vulcanizing facility. So they opened a a vulcanizing store, and it became very popular, uh, owing probably to the interaction between the brothers. Uh, And and, um, my my father had a certain kind of... um, he, they were both big. My father was particularly big. He was like 6'2 and 250 pounds. But he was kind of like a big, jolly man. Mm. He was friendly and fat. So Jim was the businessman. My dad was the guy who changed the tires mm. and, and did all the hard work. Jim was the brains. So the Hall Brothers Tire Vulcanizing Company 
uh, did really well. And they were boarding at a boarding house a few blocks away where my mother was 14 years old when they first went there to board. So, How old was he then? He, my, my father was 10 years older than my mother. 24. Okay. So he was 24 then. So that's when they met, and she was taking violin lessons. Uh-huh. So he sort of waited for her until she was like 21. So when he was 30 or 31 and she was 20 or 20, whatever, then they got married. And then, and then I was born in 1931. Mm. So at the time that they got married and during the time that he was courting her, he was, by the standards of the time, pretty rich. The Hall Brothers Tire Vulcanizing um, corporate, company was doing really well. Mm. And then the, the Depression came, and they lost everything. Everything. So class-wise, what was your upbringing like? Slums. We lived in the slums of Toledo. Okay. Yeah. There was, in Toledo, the way Toledo was divided, there was a, an area... It's like this was our block where we lived right here. Walnut Street, 1522 Walnut Street was the address there. And the beginning of the next block, which was Utica Avenue, that's where the Mexicans and the, and the, um, and the African Americans lived for the next four or five blocks. And that was the black area, which we were all warned to stay away from, mm-hmm. that it was dangerous, and we were warned, I don't know. And, I did um, hazard a few dangerous trips down there over the years. Do you remember an incident as a kid or a teenager in Toledo where you saw racial violence? Well, it, the, the type of racism I'm talking about is um, it's a little hard to, uh, to pinpoint. Uh, some of the things that I could tell you won't seem like such a big deal. But believe me, it's a big deal. I'll tell you an example. I mean, I remember going bowling with a, uh, a group among, this in high school, and there was, a, uh, there was a black kid in the group. We were all getting our shoes at the bowling alley, and the, the guy behind the counter gave you your shoes. And I remember when the guy gave Marvin his shoes, he went... Sort of threw it. Threw them at him, yeah. It's this, I mean, this kind of racism was like everywhere, everywhere. And, of course, we're talking about, um, obviously, before Martin Luther King uh, and and Jim Crow in the South, below the Mason-Dixon line, Jim Crow was still, I mean, I mean, I remember those signs, all the drinking fountains and the bathrooms and restaurants, you know, they were out there. How did you reconcile with that? I mean, you you were a, a literate bookish kid. I was a literate bookish kid. Who didn't fit in with his white contemporaries. But you did have a father who was part of that past, and you had a family that was part of some of the slavery in in this country. What did you make of it, or how did you even process some of this? Uh, I I don't think I I did too well. I mean, I I can't look back and Say that I really got it, and really, uh, really took a, a brave and courageous stand, and I, none of that. I was, I was too much a product of the system. Uh, I mean, my mother was um, 
pretty much uh, embodied the racial attitudes that were part of the ethos of the time in Toledo, Ohio. Mm. Uh, I would say that she was... She would say stuff at home that was pretty inflammatory? She did. She did, yeah. And did that make you feel uncomfortable? or? Yeah, it did, because I couldn't... I didn't see the evidence of it. I mean, uh, I, again, I wasn't so... Uh, I didn't have such a clear overview of the world. Right. That, um, But I do remember arguing with her about some of these things. But I'd say I was not... Or not leading any protests or anything. Um, but in my own day-to-day life, I didn't practice any any racism. I mean, I had friends who were good friends who were African American, uh, both both boys and girls, and I saw the injustices. I worked at a restaurant uh, called Leo's Grill um, as a part-time job when I was going to school. And, this um, is in high school. Uh, this is actually in in college. Okay. Uh, so I'd be uh, eighteen, nineteen. He's uh, seventeen, eighteen, or nineteen. Yeah. I went to the University of Toledo. I'm a I'm a graduate of the University of Toledo. So this is about 1949. I started in 1949 and graduated in 1954. Right. I remember I'm, I'm working in the uh, in the restaurant. It was a, it was a 24 hour a day restaurant. It was a neighborhood grill, but it had a it had a pinball machine in it, and I think there was other kind of gambling things involved. And the the owner of it uh, was a uh, kind of an alcoholic uh, dandy. The cops used to come in there all the time, and um, the register was right up in front, and there weren't many people in there. It was the middle of the night, and there had been a black guy in there. A couple of cops came in, white cops. But I kind of heard this yelling, and I noticed the black guy wasn't there. I, mean, I hadn't even seen him go out. Well, what they had done, they had taken the black guy out. He was in the car in the back of a patrol wagon. They were beating him up, and the kid was in there yelling, screaming, yelling. I remember standing there in the driveway wondering, ordinarily I would call the cops, but I'm thinking, I, I, I don't think that's the right thing to do here. I don't think I should call the cops. What am I going to do? I'm not going to go in and stop these cops from doing this. The guys will kill me. So I went back inside and went about my work. But anyway, I do remember I remember that. And then seeing the attitude of uh, I was um, I was <coughs> I taught I taught school back in uh, Toledo when I got out of the army. Um, You're an English teacher. I was an English teacher. Yeah, but. Well, but I, I taught first in elementary school, later in high school, but first in English in elementary. In elementary, you teach whatever. You teach all mm. teach everything. So you're in your early 20s teaching these kids. I was um, 22 when I went into the Army. You certainly strike me as someone who could have been in the Army. Like, it makes who, sense in my who head. Who could have been in the Army? Well, I mean, that you were, obviously. You were, but right. in, in my head, if I hadn't known that prior to coming here, I would have guessed... You would have? I would have made a bet on it, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something about your demeanor, I think, though, right? I mean, it feels orderly. Well, the only thing is, what I tell you about my Army experience is a little different than that. I'm a Korean veteran, by the way. I was never in Korea. But, but I'm, in, I'm officially a Korean veteran because mm-hmm. that's, I'm not a Second World War II veteran. But I am a veteran of the, um, of the occupation force 
in in Europe because I was in Germany during my time in the army. But when I got out of the when I got out of college, and uh, I did some student teaching, I was eligible to uh, teach in the school system part time, based on if I would continue to go to school and and work toward my master's degree. So I I was teaching sort of uh, as a substitute teacher on and off whenever they needed me, and I didn't see I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't see. I thought I, there's just no way that, and I would read about actors and how they went to this. Uh, the, the big school then was um, Carnegie uh, or Northwestern. Those were big acting schools. Mm. Uh, these were beyond anything my mind couldn't even. I mean, I was aware of it. Uh, there would be a great place to be, and if I could magically put myself at Yale in 1954 or Carnegie or one of these schools that that was famous for producing younger actors. That would have been great. I would have done that, but I couldn't do that. It would be on financially. And Where did the acting impulse even come from? I mean, there's nothing in your family that would suggest... No, there is nothing in my family that would suggest that. There was a, um, there was a book that my mother had, and it was, a, it was a type of book that was popular in the 30s, maybe the 40s. It was a book that combined all at once some poetry... Like, but for reading aloud, some quick short stories, but very character driven. Some songs. It was like a primer for a young performer, mm-hmm. you know. And little monologues, you know, one and a half page monologues. Anyway, I don't know the name of the book. I keep hoping it'll come to me in a dream. All right, so you read that. Anyway, so that was around, and I remember doing things from that. Um, there was a movie theater. Uh, about a 15-minute, 10-minute walk away. And um, my mom used to go there a lot and take me with her. Oh, remember remember that I was I was an only child until I was eight. I, had a, I have a brother who's 10 years younger, and I have a brother who, who's eight years younger. So um, my brother Lee, who lives, in, uh, who lives in West Palm Beach, Florida, God help him, um, <laughs> He, now, he was a career army officer. Are you anti-West Palm Beach? For, <laughs> well, and then I have another brother, Alan, and I don't know what happened to, to Alan. And Alan kind of vanished. So we don't... What do you mean? Well, we don't know where he is. We don't know what happened to him. Well, when when did that happen? Probably over 20 years ago. We haven't. We just lost track of him. He, he, he joined the uh, Salvation Army, and... Um, he seemed to be kind of rootless and couldn't seem to find a uh, a path anywhere for himself. Did you try helping him? Well, he wasn't where he, where he could be helped. I mean, look, I've been all over. I mean, I was I was in Germany for years, and then I was in Toledo for then I was in New York, and then I was all over in New York because I was in a lot of the regional theaters. I would. Right. in New York and out of New York. This, New is, York. this is in the 60s. You're doing a lot of stuff on and off Broadway. Yeah, and I wasn't... Um, I, and I had two children. And I had my two older daughters, uh, too. I was not in a position to uh, to reach out to Alan and help save his life. Uh, he did uh, come to visit me one time in New York, and I wouldn't... I didn't take him in. He had seven or eight kids with him. He was married, or if not married, he was somehow involved with a woman. 
who had seven or eight children. And I remember they all arrived literally in the hallway of my apartment in New York to stay there indefinitely because they had nowhere to go. Um, What'd you do? I had trouble, wouldn't let him in. It was a 200 square foot apartment. Come on, not as big as this room for God's sake. For, nine people. For nine plus, plus my wife. Another wife was living there at the time. So, it's a... What do you mean? Another wife, what are you talking about? No, I've been married three times. So you, you you married the girl from college. Yeah. And you had two kids with her. Right. And then that was in... Now we got divorced in 65 or 66. Okay. So is that... So then you moved to New York and you meet someone else. Well, I was in New York from 1960 mm-hmm. on. So how are you balancing the struggling actor looking and getting, getting work? You were getting work on plays in, in Broadway with... Um, an ex-wife, two kids, and a new wife. That seems like a lot. It was a lot, yes. How did and you, a brother with uh, Yeah, and a brother with nine. So how, how did you, was that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I don't know how I made it through. I'll tell you the truth. I don't, don't know how I got here. A lot, a lot of coffee or? <laughs> no, I'm just, um, I'm lucky to be here. Let's put it that way. What was money like back then for you? This is this is in the sixties and early seventies. Yeah, in the seventies, but it's a different economy. I mean, you know, you could live hard as it was, and it was hard, but still, an artist. Uh, and I'm saying, I mean, I can relate to that because uh, I, I'm trying to think: Did I know anybody in my immediate circle who was not an artist? Not really. I didn't. They were all artists. Yeah, the ones that I knew were. Yeah. Do you remember any of them now that? Made stuff? Well, I was, you know, Roy Scheider and I were very close friends. Uh, in fact, Roy Scheider and I had our first big job with Helen Hayes in Skin of Our Teeth and June Havoc. Helen Hayes and Life Erickson were the stars. And Roy and I had small parts in that uh, in that production. Um, Peter Boyle and I were very, very close friends at that time. Anyway, I forget where I was in the, in the narration here. There's so much... Uh, yeah, and you could still make a living, but at a certain point, you decided to move to Los Angeles. I think it was 1975? Yeah, 74. Maybe I came out here to take a look, and then I came back, and then I went out for good. Came out in 75 for good. It, it really happened when I got a great job with a, with a play that was supposed to be coming to Broadway. Several weeks' employment, ending with an opening on Broadway. Anyway, I, after I got cast... In New York, it was not uncommon. Um, New York being among actors, uh, very competitive, and uh, in your own little group uh, to brag about your latest achievement, if you had one. And uh, they were hard to come by, achievements in New York. So I I realized, looking at my little book, after I was cast in this play, that, that all the friends to whom this triumph would be meaningful had already moved to L.A., mm. where they were making a good living. Right. and uh, They had other triumphs. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have anybody to call, really, to whom, for whom it mattered. Nobody to lord it over, yeah. you might say. By right? the way, that's a great sign of, uh, that's like the great test of knowing when you should leave a place. Right. When right. you're like, wait, I can't brag to anyone. There's, oh, there's no one yeah. here. That's what happened, yeah. I must, I must go west. So I called my good friend, Pat Corley. Uh, great actor who died a few years ago, and we discussed how how empty it is when there's nobody to to share the good news with. 
Mm. We got work. Make some other actors feel bad, right? I got a job. <laughs> um, even in so, even in the early seventies, there was already a mass exodus to Los Angeles. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, Pat and I were late. Also, what really made the move for me, notwithstanding not having anybody to brag to, but what really made the move for me was realizing that now I'm about forty, or forty-one, or forty-two. And I'm thinking, if did I have no pension plan that's worth anything? Mm. I have a little measly equity pension plan, but that at, at the most would be worth almost nothing in terms of what expenses are. And and that I had already heard that SAG has a great uh, pension plan and hospital plan and all this stuff. So I thought. If I'm going to build up something, I better I better get at it right away. Otherwise, I'm going to suddenly be 60 or 65 and totally broke. I didn't see any way, you know, unless, unless I got lucky. Right. You know? It was like what I had done in New York was sort of not meaningful out here. Hmm. But everything is by group. Right away, they came out and said, okay, middle-aged character actor. And it was like, well, no, I'm in New York, I'm just an actor. Well, not here, you're not. Out here, you're a middle-aged character actor. Um, and, and do you have any film that you could leave? Well, I've never done a film. Well, I did a couple, of small, but not really. I don't really have any film. That, okay, if you get some film, drop, drop it off. I'll take a look. That's what I got from producers and agents when I came out here. I mean, that's really what I got. Mm. And even the best I would get would be somebody saying, well, okay. You're an interesting type, but type, type. What's his type? What's his type? What can I, if I send him out, under what type do I send this guy out? <laughs> a short, middle-aged guy with no film experience, starting from scratch in the film and TV business. I don't see a future for you, sir, but you're an interesting type. A lot of people said that. You are an interesting type. One guy even said, <laughs> said, you have an unusual voice, and he said, you have a lot of energy. He said, that, that energy, he said, that counts for something. He said, you might do well here, but one thing I have to tell you, he said, and the reason I can't sign you is that there are lots of guys who look just like you standing ahead of you in line. He said, so I don't know how to get through that. He said, I would have to go to a casting person or to a producer and say, I have faith in this guy. He's a great actor. You'll love him. He said, I don't even know if you can walk and talk, for God's sake, other than what you've done here in the office. He said, anyway, it, was, um, it took a while to get started. And through hook and by crook, I got a, uh, I ended up in front of a, of a director for a, a movie of the week. Remember when those were popular for CBS starring Martin Sheen about a ship captain who, when the ship goes down and the, the lifeboat will only accommodate 30 people, um, but there are 100 people on their own board, he has to make the decision who lives and who dies. And in the upshot of this actual story, uh, they are rescued, the people in the boat, and then when they get back, he's accused of, of murder. This was an English uh, um, Chip Captain, mm -hmm. he's accused of murder and has to defend himself. 
and I got the role in a movie of his uh, defense attorney. Not much of a part, a couple scenes, but still, it got me on the got me on the board. And I didn't even know I had that one. I ended up in front of a director. We talked for a couple of minutes. He looked at the resume, and he said, "Thanks for coming in." And I left. And a couple of weeks later, I'm called by the by the wardrobe people in CBS. This is the first I knew, because I didn't get up there through an agent. Right. So I had no agent who called and said, you got the part. Right. The wardrobe people called and said, what are your sizes? Right. For what? <laughs> they said for the movie, for the movie about the ship. I said, oh, I got that? Yeah, you're playing the uh, defense attorney. So, okay, great. How many years did it take from being out here from that happening? Maybe less than a year. Less than a year. Less than a year, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I got on the board eventually. I got on the board all considered fairly quickly, but in the beginning, it wasn't quite like my friend said that all you have to do is walk in the room and they'll sign you up right of the way mm-hmm. and you'll have your own series by the end of the week. It wasn't like that. So Right. Yeah. Did you believe him when he said that? No. No, I didn't. No. So you weren't naive? Oh, no, not at all, not at all. But I, but I had, um, I had a lot of confidence. But, but by now, also, remember at this point, I'm, a, I'm a very experienced actor at this point. So coming out here didn't really, it didn't really scare me that much because I figured already that I was probably a more advanced actor than most of the people who were making a good living out here. But I, but I needed to get a, a role worthy of it. I needed to get a, uh, an agent who would have enough faith to maybe put me in. He said I was in line behind, you know, I was All one guy. He, he was sending me for TV. I said, you got to send me for features. He said, well, he said, first of all, you don't have any feature background. I, I said, I know, but I said, I've got I've to crack through this feature thing somehow. He said, my problem is that I have a lot of actors your age that have been with me for 10, 15 years. He said, you've been here like a year. He said, I think you're probably a better actor than most of them. He said, most of them are not New York actors. They are a type. He said, and he said, I think maybe you have a little more range than that. But he said, I can't in good conscience put you ahead of them because they have families. They know their family. They know their wives. So he said, I feel an allegiance to them. When a, when a part in your range comes up, I feel that I sort of owe them the first shot for a feature. So he said, I can't, I can't do it. So when I left him, after Secret Honor came out. So we're skipping ahead till. Oh, I just jumped to that, yeah. 85. I left him, and yeah, he he went crazy. 84, Uh, Secret Honor came out. He went crazy when I I left him after Secret Honor came out. They elected me not once, not twice, but all my goddamn life. And they would do it again, too, if they had the chance. Oh, sure. They said they didn't trust me. They said, let Dick Nixon do it, and I did it. Did he get you Secret Honor? Oh, no, no, no. No, Secret Honor came just as a result of doing the play first. And then Altman coming one night to see the play, because it got a big review in the L.A. Times. Mm. So he was uh, intrigued. And he came. Bought out the house, basically, because Altman, uh, in those days, traveled with a retinue, 
he didn't travel alone. He had a group of. He had a crew. You might say. <laughs> you might say and a lot of a lot of yes a lot of yes men. You might say and women. Anyway, he came and then when he saw it, he came backstage and said he, right away he said he wanted to take it to New York. He wanted to make a movie out of it. He had all these plans. Everything. What is that conversation like with him backstage? Well, it was pretty unusual because I forget the kind of. Did you know he was coming that night? Yeah, I did. I did. I did know he was coming. It was a very small theater, too. The producer said that, he said, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but he said, Robert Altman's in town. He's, he saw the review and he called. He's, he's reserved the theater for like 15 people or something. And uh, yeah, and there he was. I mean, it was very close. I mean, small theater. And there he was sitting there with his wife and all these other people. Were you nervous performing that night? No, I was pretty sure what I was doing. I was pretty confident. But by the time he got there... So it made sense to you when you found him backstage after the show? Yeah, when he came back, my uh, the producer told me, he said, Altman likes a very expensive brand of scotch. He said, why don't you put this in the drawer here? So he came back with some of his group. They were all in the dressing room there. I pulled out the scotch and some glasses there. Did he say, wow, I like scotch? No, he didn't. I don't remember what he said. But he did say that he uh, he loved the production and he wanted to take it to New York as a play. And then he wanted to make a movie out of it. You were immediately on board for that, I'm assuming. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was immediately on board for that. So in the aftermath of that movie, or even when you're doing it or when it comes out, did you feel like that was the film that really put you on the map? Yeah, it did and it didn't, you know. It did. It put me on the map. But it wasn't until Paul Thomas Anderson that I got more on the I think the the next thing, it, it did get me on the map, but I think a lot of people were kind of intimidated by that. I know that a lot of directors did agree to see me. After Secret Honor, but they didn't know what to make. Didn't know what to make of it. They didn't sure. They weren't sure who I was or what I was. Who were you meeting? My with? bona fides were not. Oh, some pretty well-known directors I met during that period. I think there were some. Some I felt that just sort of wanted to meet me, or were trying to fit me into, not into a particular role, but like, who is this guy? Right. Who did this? I mean, I, I think it did create a ripple. Do you know how exciting this would be for people to hear about these fantasy meetings? <laughs> like Scorsese? You had, uh, no, Allen not Scorsese. Or? But the, the, guy who, who did, um, uh, the guy who did the war film, who did the Kennedy film, he was one of them. Oliver Stone? Yes, Oliver Stone. Yeah, some other ones too. They just wanted to meet you. They wanted, yeah, they, they I think were, so. They were trying to get a sense of what you were and what you could do. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Oh, no, I, I had the feeling that those directors after Secret Honor who did see me... Do you remember a specific meeting that you were like, oh, that seemed good. That seemed like a, there was something good. Well, there. I remember one, I did get something. I did get a role out of it, uh, but not the role I was looking for. Say Anything, which was film. Cameron Crowe. Yes, yes, Cameron Crowe. It's a great movie. Say Anything. It is a great movie, yeah. I was reading for the role of the father originally. Oh. I read a couple times for the father, I think. And I heard later um, 
that kind of was a big blow to me at the time. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get that part, and I was, I was. It was a great part. It's a father. totally different movie with you as a father. As the father, yeah. It's yeah, it's a totally different because, movie. Because that father, like, there's a tenor. There's an old, there's a, I'd be interested in you doing it. Yeah, it'd be a different movie. But Cameron was, how, how, whatever went down, I don't know the backstage of it, I didn't, once it was over, I didn't really bother too much about it. But Cameron called, and he felt bad that I didn't get the father. And he sort of, he sort of made the the tax man uh, more uh, made more of it than it was in the original script, mm-hmm. and he said I would be delighted though if you would play this part, and he said you know we'll we'll focus it and make it really do a lovely scene and blah 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 blah, which he did. It's a nice scene. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was kind of a blow at the time, and, but it is a terrific movie. You know? But then 1991 happens. 91. What was 91? Was that? You know what? Oh, Seinfeld. Jeez, yeah, I forgot about Seinfeld. Bookman, you're Bookman. <clears throat> Bookman. I've been watching Seinfeld since I was a kid. My father showed it to me. That episode, the library episode, I've seen that episode maybe more than any other Seinfeld episode. <laughs> and I've always watched that thinking, like, I need to talk to Bookman. I need to know what's going on with that guy. Because that monologue, it may be the best performance that show ever had. You took this book out in 1971. Yes, and I returned it in 1971. Yeah, 71. That was my first year on the job. Bad year for libraries. Bad year for America. Hippies burning library cards. Abby Huffman telling everybody to steal books. I don't judge a man by the length of his hair or the kind of music he listens to. Rock was never my bag. But you put on a pair of shoes when you walk into the New York Public Library, fella. Look, Mr. Bookman. I, I returned that book. I remember it very specifically. You're a comedian. You make people laugh. I try. You think this is all a big joke, don't you? And you're laughing while I'm saying this. Well, it's, it is funny. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible... So when, tell funny. me... Tell me all that. Tell me everything that happened. You got well, the script. my... Um, my agent uh, at the time, they sent me the script, and they said that um, that the casting director there had um, said that he should be like a uh, a Joe Friday type of character. That's what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. I remember my my agent saying, "Can you do uh, a Joe Friday character?" Well, yeah, you always when somebody asks an actor a stupid question like that, you always say yes. Yes. Even if you can't, the it doesn't matter. Yes. You know, you know an audition for an important role, for an important show. Anyway, I said yes. And, uh, of course, I'm familiar with the character, but still, it's like, I don't do imitations. I mean, I, you know, I don't... It didn't feel like an imitation. No, and it wasn't meant... But that's what they were looking for. But I remember going in, Jerry himself was participating in the, re- the reading, uh, as himself. He was there. And all the rest of their, their creators... Everybody was there. I remember I, I read through it, and you, you know it's it's customary in auditions that nobody says anything at the end of even if they intend to cast you, but there are other people to see, other commitments, other loyalties, other who knows what sure. goes on in casting. A lot of stuff. I mean, look, I've directed quite a bit in the theater. I know some of the shenanigans go on in casting. You know. Who gets cast in wine somewhere? Anyway, 
when you go into a reading for a particular role, you always look and see, oh, there's, oh, hi, John, somebody we know. Oh, you know, I always see you. Hi, Richard, good to see you. The other six guys, eight guys, I don't know who they are, but of the other six, like five of them, are completely recognizable. They were all stars of previous series. They're all well-known actors. That's what I was facing coming into that, the waiting room mm. for the people waiting to read for this part. So I go in with this formidable competition sitting out here. I do the reading, and nobody can control themselves. I mean, everybody, including Jerry, they're laughing all over the place, which he continued to do, by the way, even into the filming. <laughs> if you watch him in the filming, I've seen it. he's having a hard time. He's a terrible Sometimes, actor. well, that's another story, but uh, he's having a hard time controlling himself. During, he's starting to laugh almost half the time there. So when I left, the goodbyes were effusive, I would say, to put it mildly. This is one of the few times when I came home, I told my wife, I said, you know, I, said, I don't normally speculate because you never know what's happening in readings. I said, but I think I think I will be getting a phone call on this part. <laughs> and about 20 minutes later, there was a phone call. I said, which is not usual in the business. Mm. Usually it has to go through channels, and there's usually another couple of days, and then they call the agent. I always like to know, was I the first choice, or was I an alternate choice? The agents often will know that, mm. right? It's always good to know whether you were like, you were the only one they considered, or were you like, everybody else said no to this crappy part, or whatever, right? Do you turn stuff down if... All the time, yeah. Well, no turn downs yet today. How many turn... No, but yeah, I turn down a lot of stuff. I have a kind of a standard that I've set for general literacy. Mm. Um, having two young daughters, uh, I'm pretty careful about... There was I won't go into it, but there was a major film a few years ago, and a big part that I turned down. I had some regrets at the time because it had to do with a lot of really bad, violent sex stuff with a young woman. And I have two two young daughters. I couldn't do it. You couldn't justify that? No, I couldn't. I, I do have a certain line in terms of, you know, because I don't want to be known as the, uh, even if it's a great role. Mm. And it was kind of a great role, but I don't want to be known as the guy that famous, oh yeah, you're the guy that played that guy that, Molested all those young girls. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting conversation, though, that you're having with yourself, which is great art often means doing things that are wildly uncomfortable. Yes, it comes up in terms of art. What what do we take? You know, do we do we not listen to Wagner because he was a vital component of of Hitler's rise and the, um, the way the music was used and characterized by by the Nazis and so forth. But it seems like your philosophy is you're going to put principles before taking apart. I don't want to stand on that because maybe I haven't. It might be, you have to be careful what you stand on because it's too easy to say, ah, but I don't think you did over here. Sure. Maybe I didn't. There may be. I, I don't mean. But it's in my mind. There's complexity to this and there's nuance and I'm sure there are performances yeah. that wouldn't fit on your ethical scale. But it does seem that you're willing to or rather you're not willing to go against something you deeply believe in as a human being when it comes to art. Yes, that is true. Yeah, which which true. means, yeah. then, that you probably have not made some great movies that you could have made because you put your beliefs first. 
that's possible. I don't know if I would make that statement. I mean, it's speculative. It's kind of a grandiose statement if I were theor- actually It's theoretical. It. Say I would have been great if they'd let me play the kind of parts I want to play. <laughs> right. Sure. Um, but you. I'm not, but I'm, I'm actually not, this is not yeah. mine. You just said no, 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 you no, were no, offered no. a great part. Yeah. You, if, if the one a few years ago, the one recently, right, right. where even you think the script is really good, and, and I imagine if you personified the script, it would have turned out pretty well. Again, who knows what happens knows? in post and yeah. all. Sure. But it's an interesting distinction. Yeah, it is. It is. But then when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson, I mean, let's just start with Hard Eight. Yeah, right. It's a film that is, perhaps, its surrounding elements are devoid of ethics. But your character is like the one guiding <laughs> light. Yes. So, yeah. so the part made sense for you? It did, completely. Yeah. It was a dream part from that point of view. You know, to... Um, to be the guy with the ethics, um, who also gets to do all these, all these interesting, fun things, and it was, yeah, great part. Why do you want that to be the presentation of you? Well, I don't know. I say I have four girls, and um, I always felt that I somewhat um, blemished my position with my two older daughters by allowing the relationship between my first wife and myself to reach the point where we were divorced. They were pretty young. They were like in the fourth and fifth grades when we divorced. So they had a kind of a tough time after the divorce um, before their lives got stabilized again. It took a few years for their lives to get to get back on track, quite a few years before their lives got back on track, I think. So um, I think it, at least if not before, certainly since that time, I have wanted to uh, sort of validate my own goodness uh, in my daughter's eyes. But that's a, certainly at least one of the reasons to um, to hope to um, to garner the approval, I think, of my, my two... By the way, my two grown daughters uh, are 61 and 60. Hard to imagine that, that I have a 16-year-old and a 61-year-old, and i got the reverse numbers there. Four girls. Also, I think um, I think an artist wants to, uh, or many artists, I think want to uh, present the the bright, shiny side of of life, a more optimistic, more um, more liberal side. I think through whatever they do, whether it's their their music or their poetry or their uh, acting, directing. But it doesn't preclude playing um, villains or bad guys either because as as the artist attempts to elucidate the, all the varieties of human experience, bad behavior is, is equally essential to understand and not justify, but um, to understand it and to try to find what what's at the center of it. Do you think the PTA movies, starting with Heart Eight and through Magnolia, best encapsulated that spectrum? Yeah, I do. I do think so. I think Paul and I were really eye-to-eye on those, on those three movies, yeah, for sure. What did you make of him as a young director? I mean, he was so young when you did he Heart Eight. He was so young, yeah. But he was, um, 
he was so gifted. Uh, you know, that, I remember when I when I when I did um, the three Paul Thomas Anderson movies, including the the short version of Cigarettes and Coffee. Did you ever see that? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Paul, um, I think, was himself a little more maybe idealistic in those days, and was looking for uh, for characters. I think that embodied um, more of the light than of the dark, but using the dark to arrive at the light. But we um, we really did see eye to eye on those uh, on those projects, beginning with cigarettes and coffee, the little mm-hmm. short. And I'm going to make myself comfortable first, and I think you ought to do the same thing. Otherwise, this thing of urgency that you have to tell me it's going to it's going to be like a conversation in two passing cars on a highway. Yeah, you're right. It is a matter of tradition. And that's why we have these things. That's why we have this coffee and these cigarettes. You understand? I'm talking about our bonfires for today. Look, you have something to tell me, something you want to say. Yes. So we're going to sit around our bonfire of coffee and cigarettes, and you're going to share your story. But we wait until the coffee is poured. Would you guys have long conversations about... We did. We did. We spent a long time together in those days. It's funny, I was, um, I think I was doing, or getting ready to do, or I'd just done Death of a Salesman or something at the Los, An- Los Angeles Theater Center. And um, somebody whom I knew was participating in a reading of a, of a new play somewhere. And he said, by the way, he said, I know this, this kid who's a director uh, and he's written a short film that he would like you to read. Do you mind if I just give you this? So he, that was Cigarettes and Coffee, which he gave to me. And um, say at least it kind of blew me away. I couldn't believe the writing. couldn't believe the quality of the writing was, it was staggering, mm. overwhelming, the quality of the writing was. It was so good that it's like you you don't believe it's not plagiarized. That's how good it was. You say, well, yeah, wouldn't he? Where, where was this stolen from? This writing is of a very high order here. It was a, it was a knockout. About it. He had some mastery of, of writing early on. Sure when did. you're on set with Hard Aid or Sydney, the original title, did he have that control? The directing was, um, you know, we found out later on that, that the producers loved the script. And, you know, they had tried to buy the script a couple of studios had tried to buy the script before that. Um, not him as a director. They just wanted the script, but he wouldn't sell it without them taking him as the director. So when he finally got this German company to take him as to take him as the director writer, it seems pretty clear that they probably tend to get rid of him quickly and say the footage was no good or whatever. But Paul was smart and he was sort of a step ahead of everybody else, including them. So he, instead of whatever we were going to shoot first in the sequence, at virtually the last minute, he decided instead he would do the first big scene between me and um, Sam Jackson because he wanted to get his most experienced actors in there as quickly as he could for dailies, I think, because, and he explained to us, I wasn't going to do this. But he said, I want to put you guys, I know you're not, maybe not quite prepared for this. But he said, I think I want to do this because I think they got a really sharp eye on us here. 
I certainly felt a little self-conscious then, then first day that like it's all riding on this. Right. If if we if if we don't pull this off here, this movie may not get made, mm. or it may get made under different auspices. And you know? so, I was kind of nervous about it. Sam, I don't know if Sam was nervous. I don't know if Sam was ever nervous about anything. Not <laughs> then, not now, not ever. Probably, I don't know. Did was he carefree back then? Yeah, you know, I was already in another movie with Sam that would uh, "Kill Me If You Can" or something like that. It was called. Where I played big. Big Jake, Big Daddy, something like that. But Paul's uh, directing a human. The, the script was so vibrant and so alive, and it was so ingeniously hooked together that um, acting-wise, anything he said or didn't say was covered by how how powerful the script was. Um, so when he did offer any suggestions, notwithstanding his lack of experience as a movie director or as a director dealing with actors at all, because there's a certain kind of way you can get results from actors and certain other ways, you probably will not get results from them, right? Are you one for getting tested on sets? No, but but I, I do like to know what's going on. But I I also am aware of the uh, it is a cooperative process, and we're all in it together, and we have to all uh, invest the best of ourselves in uh, all the cliches, but are true in movie making, because there are a lot of people. You know, you you look at that that movie roster for the day, and you see like it's 172 people. Mm-hmm. It's a big budget movie, let's say. It's 172 people. They're four actors, right? <laughs> What are the other 168 doing, right? Well, they're making it possible for the four actors to do what they do. What did you make of the Boogie Nights set, speaking of large groups of people? Well, when I first saw it, I didn't know how he was going to pull it all together. So many people, so many um, decisions to be made, so many sets. Did it seem organized? Well, it seemed organized when he did it. The thing is that that was... um, a powerful lesson to me was the night when where they were shooting the scene and um, they were shooting it at a shopping center out in the valley somewhere in a restaurant. I was not in the scene, but he uh, invited me out there. And it was a night scene. And um, he was still very young. He'd only done the one feature. He, I remember he was standing in the middle of the parking lot and there were people coming up to him with a question a decision that he had to make. Then somebody else would come up with another decision. Some of these are big decisions. You know, we're going to have the uh, the boom over in the 45 degrees with a 200 clean light on it. All these decisions, last minute, being made before the shooting. I'm thinking as I'm watching this, I'm thinking I'm watching the phenomenon of the kind of genius that... This young man, almost a kid, was destined to play, probably from birth. He, this is what he was destined to do. He is doing what he absolutely should be doing. He has no knowledge about any of the stuff he's talking about. I mean, no knowledge is not fair. But I mean, he's not been doing this for 30 or 40 years. Right. He's not Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. You know? He wasn't Yuan 
Broadway in New York working for 20 years. Right. That's right. He hasn't done five. He's never directed a play as such. Yet he knows everything. He knows everything. So, therefore, you were asking about direction and his directing. Therefore, whatever he says is not questionable. In other words, he is at such a level of, of um, born genius that, like, what's, what's the point? What am I questioning? If he says it, I'll do it. Not blind faith, really, but only that, like, uh, I'm dealing with a force here that's bigger than, than anything that, that I've quite seen before in terms of a director. This is somebody who's, whose vision is so intact and so powerful and so locked in. And he's not crazy. I mean, there are some crazy visionaries out there, too. Paul isn't crazy. Totally practical and down to earth. I think you work with some of those. And over the years, quite a few of them, especially in the theater. Yeah. Anyway, he. Um, so I never had a problem. Whatever, whatever he said, even if under other circumstances, I might have questioned it. But with Paul, I never questioned anything. Never argued with him about anything. He had it. I never said, you know, like, because I didn't agree with everything that he did. I, but I, but I never questioned it. Never really. I, I said, well, you know, what do I know? You know, if I knew that much, I would have written a script. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know. Complaining about good roles. Why didn't I write myself a role like this ten years ago, when I couldn't get into the feature auditions? Mm-hmm. Nobody would let me in. Um, so obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about in this area. He does, so I better listen to him. I he, he really saw something in you. I mean, what do you make of you're in the t- early 2000s now, and Magnolia's come out, Boogie Nights came right, out, right. Heart Eight. You're you're really his like first true muse in his filmography. You're the recurring part in all, in all right, those. Right, right. What do you make of like? That trajectory and that part of your career, Cause it, it almost—I think you mentioned this earlier—like that was that film, Hard Eight, and and the following four years into the new uh, millennium. That really put you into a different stratosphere. It did. Yeah. This kid, this kid who's twenty. Yeah. And he adores you. Yeah, it was an amazing, uh, it was an amazing time, amazing period. Yeah. You guys were co-creators, co-conspirators. Co-conspirators, right. Yeah. Do you feel indebted to him? Yeah, I think so. I think so. As I do to Robert Altman also, who um, hey, Robert Altman invested a million dollars in me. That's what it costs to take that play to New York and to do the movie. He spent a million dollars of his own money to do it. And he never got it back. I mean, it didn't. the film was not a commercial success. And the play was not a commercial success. He lost it all. <laughs> Did you feel bad about that? Uh, only as he tried to make me feel guilty at one point. Right. What did he say? Oh, he, he, I don't know. We, we had an argument um, about something. Uh, he's a very difficult person to, uh, to maintain a friendship with, Robert. Why is that? Well, he has, he has, he has a way of doing things. And uh, if, you, if you don't agree... With his way of doing things, then, and then, too bad for you. Basically, mm. I mean, he's you know he was a he was a, a powerful figure in his day. He had a lot of he had a lot uh, going for him. You might say. 
He sounds a lot like PTA, though. I mean, and it's, and it's, well, they, you know, they they got together and became friends. Sure, you know, but you were accepting of the. In fact, that was PTA's first awareness of me. He had a copy of the it's one of his favorite of, movies of, of Secret Honor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him talk about it, but it's interesting. Yeah. You were accepting of PTA's unabashed, we're doing it my way. Right. But when Altman said it... Altman and I, we didn't have any... We had no discussion at all about uh, Secret Honor. The word Secret Honor had been done in the theater. And we took it to New York, and my only caveat was that, that we would keep the same director off-Broadway in New York, which we did, Bob Harder's was the original director, and continued to be. Altman directed the movie, but Bob Harders really directed the movie. And in fact, Bob Harders gets an associate director credit, and he got paid by Altman also Mm. as the associate director. But he really directed it, Bob did. Robert Altman directed it for the movie in the sense of many of the physical relationships had to be changed for the movie, different than they were maybe in the theater. He also slimmed down the play. For the camera, he cut about 20 minutes, 25 minutes out of it, which was good, because the play ran almost two hours. Well, it sounds like he was more of a producer than a director on the movie. He was, he was. But he made it possible, though. It was his money, his energy. I mean, wherever we, we took the play to Boston and uh, New York and Washington, D.C., and he went every place, and he went ahead and used his fame and his power Mm -hmm to get it going, to get the talk started, to, to do the interviews and television and radio and so forth too, and to be there opening night, push the reviews and so forth. I mean, he did all that. Although it sounds like the more you guys work together and spend time together, the less the relationship seemed to suffer. Yeah, it did. Uh, and yet I, we both felt bad about it. And so every, every couple of years, uh, he or his wife, Catherine, she would always say, you and Bob really ought to bury this thing and become friendly again, she said. Because he and I were very friendly at one time. Yeah. But it got to a point where she felt there was a thing to bury. It got that bad. Yeah. The thing is that dealing with people who are extremely famous and extremely powerful can be a little a little difficult. Uh, they're, they're living a different kind of a life, you know, and they have a very different perspective. Their values are very different. They're they're different. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's different. Right. And having uh, over the years known a group of people, group of people who were extremely successful at a point where I wasn't, or where I was successful in a way that 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 I felt was okay, but dealing with somebody who was successful in a very big way is uh, is often difficult. They travel in a different social strata than, than the rest of us do, mm-hmm. too. You know, if you go to a party at some rich person's house, I'd rather not go, surrounded by all this wealth and all this power and all these celebrities. I, I don't go to things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing there, you know. Have you always felt that way? Pretty much, yeah. You know? Even as the roles, especially in the early 2000s, you were getting more and more parts. Yeah. You were in Fincher movies. I mean, you you, you were yeah, yeah, in yeah. everything. I was being offered more work than I could handle. Sure. That is the truth. Yeah. And I literally did. was being offered more work than I could handle. But did you feel not part of that in a way? Like you were not part of the, the social stratosphere of it? No, I never felt quite part of it. No, I didn't. 
Did that bother you? No. I didn't wish to be part of it. I mean, I had a, um, I had particular aims as a, as an actor. <clears throat> it was in college that, um, that I began to develop a certain attitude about what to do with uh, an obvious and easy gift. I don't know if I was born to be an actor. I'm not sure about those things. But I knew a lot of people at the time who wanted to be actors for whom it seemed not likely. Uh, it seemed to be more of a wish than anything likely to be fulfilled. I felt that I, I felt it would not be so hard for me to do it. It was. It came easily to me. First of all, I could learn lines almost instantly. I didn't have to work. Not true anymore, but it was true for first. 25, 30 years of my career. I never had to work. To, I mean, I could read it and I knew it right away. I could do a whole lead in the play almost overnight by looking at it in the daytime. I could play it then, if I had to, play it the next day. I mean, right away it was like, whoa. And this was true when I was a kid. I remember when I learned, uh, when I learned Iago, the largest part in the English language, by the way, Iago, largest part in Shakespeare, 1,100 lines. <laughs> I learned it almost instantly. I thought, my God, everybody was like struggling to learn the first scene. And like after four days, I had the whole play. Anyway, so it was easy for me. And then I had to figure out what, what do I want to do here? Here's what I came up with. And it's still true. It was true then. It's true now. This hasn't changed much. I wanted to be a great artist as an actor. I did want that. Early on, I wanted to be a great actor in the great acting tradition. But I didn't want, this is insane, I didn't want to be famous. I never wanted to be famous. I did want to be known. Here's what I wanted in terms of fame. I wanted the other great actors to know who I was. Mm. I didn't care whether the public knew or whether the critics or anybody else knew. I wanted the other great actors to know that I was a great actor. and uh, But fame, I didn't want fame. It doesn't mean I haven't sought it either. Look, I'm here doing an interview. I've done literally hundreds of interviews. And I've, um, you know, where necessary, I felt to promote or propagate uh, the uh, life of a film when necessary. But, but my thing always was, though, that I was really more interested. I wanted George C. Scott Jason Robards and Lawrence Olivier to know about me more than I wanted uh, the people who read the daily newspaper to know about me uh, or the people who go to movies or see plays or whatever. And did they? Um, well, they died too soon. Uh, Robards, <laughs> Ro Robards certainly did. But, but uh, Robert Altman did. I mean, a lot of people did along the way. Uh, a lot of other uh, significant artists did know along the way. So there was some satisfaction in that realm that at a certain point, I remember Altman saying to me, how could you have been doing this since, now this is 1983. He was saying to me, how could I not have heard of you? You've been doing this all your life. He said, I know everybody who's any good. He said, I know every actor in this country who's any good. He said, I never heard of you before I went in to see I said, but I've done a lot of stuff. So I had already played about 75 roles under equity contract. I said, in New York and in the regionals and around 
and in summer stock, and, and you know, I said, by the way, which I haven't mentioned, at the time when, when I couldn't get into uh, a feature audition, I had already long reached some autonomy as a theater actor. In other words, I had control over my life as a theater actor a long time before that. I could already write my own ticket in the theater. I was getting offers to do the great parts in theater all over the world, literally. So there are two parts to my life here in terms of I was already known at this level by many people as a theater actor, but totally unknown in terms of television or film until succession of things happened, which there's no moral to the story. Uh, it's just simply uh, the, way it, the way it all worked out. Probably some of it having to do with a certain reluctance on my part to advertise myself or not knowing exactly how to advertise myself without seeming to advertise myself. Mm. Right. Maybe maybe there's that part of it. Maybe I didn't want to be seen. Maybe I was willing to do it, but I didn't want to be accused of doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. These things get yeah, more complicated than, uh, than you know. Be all that as it may, it... Uh, Seems to have worked out pretty well. It's it's worked out well. <laughs> I would say it's worked out pretty well. Well, hey, I'm happy. But look, I probably I don't know. I probably would have been happy uh, if um, I don't know. It's it's hard to uh, it's hard to put a um, a frame around it. It's like anything I say when I uh, think about this, I could almost say the opposite and and justify that too. I mean, it's like. I don't know how things work out the way they work out, or why, or whether this would have been enough, or whether it is enough, mm. or whether I want more, or less, or I don't know. I'm not sure about any of these things, you know. How often are you thinking about that? Are you are you an introspective person? Yeah, I'm pretty, but I'm also at an age when you do think about these things. Right. You know, I mean, I am 84, 85, 85 now. Um, <laughs> I was going to correct you, but I was like, yeah. I, I'm going to let you do that. No, no, it is 85, yeah. Um, well, you kind of don't pay that much attention to that when you're, you know, when you're past 48. <laughs> you sort of stop, right. stop coming. You know? What do you think about now? About which? At 85, I mean... Oh, what do you think about? You, you're, you're still in films, and you're... Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful that, that I'm still able to do this, and that... Uh, there are parts that um, that I can still play, and that I have so much stuff that still out there. I have these two movies at Sundance. Eighty-five. It's a, it's Eighty-five. It's a lot of years to be alive. Yeah, yeah it is a lot of years, and to to cover a, a span from the beginning of the depression, the terrible depression, and we lived basically uh, in poverty. We lived uh, off of the. Uh, the government handouts, what was called in those days, was called relief. It was an actual program, Congress called the relief program, and those who were unemployed and hungry, you'd go to these places once a week. My dad, I do remember this, at the age of, I don't know how old I was, four, five, three, four, five, where people would be, hundreds of people, uh, massed like in a parking lot with a big truck and a guy throwing uh, canned goods or powdered eggs off of the truck, and people would like just mm. scrounge around. And my dad was big, so he did pretty well. 
because of his size, physical size. He was able to get muscle himself in front of others. Jolly and fat. The jolly fat guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did odd jobs and, um, during the Depression. And, uh, but we basically lived uh, off of Uncle Jim's largesse, who had a real job, and his, one of his older sisters, Aunt Jane, whose husband ran the YMCA in Lansing, Michigan, which was only 100 miles away. So they would send down food bags, plus whatever my dad was able to get, plus the uh, $12 a month I think he got from a, like a social security check. You have an impeccable memory um, for both your life, but also it seems that it helped you in remembering lines. Yeah, I did. Uh, my memory is not what it was, though. I, I don't know if I'm an Alzheimer's candidate or not, but my quick memory for names, places, especially more recent stuff, can be a, a little shaky mm-hmm. these days, I notice. Sometimes I can't remember everybody's name that I should remember, you know? Just quickly can. I maybe think about it a little bit. I may come up with it. And that didn't used to be true. Mm-hmm. And also, um, vocabulary-wise, I love language, the use of language, and the way of hooking opposites together and making up different uses for old words, but that still makes sense. And I find I'm not as... I'm not as quick at that as I used to be. I used to be just almost like a, a game to play with language in ordinary discourse to mm. use, use language in kind of unusual ways. Are you a religious person? Uh, I, my, we belong to a Unitarian church. I don't know if you know about the Unitarians or if you followed any of that. Uh, not much, but okay. feel free to... From Abraham Lincoln to now, give you an idea of the kind of liberal platform that the Unitarian Church has stood on Thoreau, Lincoln. and But um, I've also been very involved in over the years with uh, Zen Buddhism. My wife is very involved with a, a Buddhist temple here in town, and I go there with her sometimes. I used to be a very active Zen Buddhist uh, at one time. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm not I'm saying that I'm not, not still interested in that. I am, but I have so much to do right now. I have to keep track of all the Trump stuff. So much time is taken trying to uh, stay abreast of what's going on. You know, keeping up with Trump these days—it's a full-time job. It's a full-time job. You know, so you're putting Trump over Buddhism in, in the hopes that maybe that's the key. Maybe that's the answer. Trump over Buddhism. <laughs> anyway, um, religious in the sense of. My, my mother was and took me to, but I was never really convinced, but hey, I had to go, to the First Evangelical and Reformed Church. Pretty rigid, I would say, and pretty big fire and brimstone kind of stuff. I can still see the face of the, of the minister who was the, uh, the preacher there. He was kind of like a scary figure. You know? Are you afraid of dying? It's a good question. Certainly, is a good question. I have the air problem. I have a prostate problem. I have high blood pressure. I have several threatening conditions. Um, okay, let me backtrack on threat of dying. Um, I don't know why, but somehow, during my fifties and maybe very early sixties, 
I did have a fear of dying then. It's like a period that I went through. Like, oh, I went through my period of dying, of being afraid of dying 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was like I thought, my God, my heart could stop any minute. Oh, my God, whatever could happen. Oh, maybe I'll get cancer. And then all these things. Well, you were drinking and smoking a lot back then. I was smoking, that's for sure. Uh, I stopped drinking in 89. I haven't had a drink since 89. It was becoming too much? or? Well, I didn't like waking up with a, with a headache. I still don't like waking up with a headache. But but when I was drinking, even a couple of beers at night or red wine, which I used to like with dinner, was enough that I would wake up with a little headache the next day. At the same time that I was giving up smoking, too, I decided that I would like to live the rest of my life uncluttered by his, his little alcohol. And, uh, and, I, and I used to smoke grass, too. Uncluttered by his little tobacco or grass or alcohol. As possible, mm. so uh, that I like to have a little clearer vision of what what I'm doing, where I'm going, where I've been, and so forth. So to address the present about dying, I don't know. I don't think about it much. And so many friends have died, and so many friends who have not died either have uh, Alzheimer's or some beginning form of dementia that like. What do I, what 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 do I have to do with death? What do I have to do with dying? I mean, is it imminent? I don't know. Do I want to live to be ninety six? Do I want to do this? I don't know. You know, my wife is much younger, as you can see. My children, of course, are clearly much younger. So, I don't know where where I am on the on the death question. <laughs> my dad's uh, dictum about. Religion, when somebody asked him if he went to church, he would say, I go to the round church so the devil can't corner me. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. My dad always used to say that. I go to the round church so the devil can't corner me. That's kind of the way I feel about death right now. I'm taking a roundabout route to the end so the devil can't corner me, so death can't mow me down. My, you know, you know. I mean, I, as far as working, what am I working for at this point? I just think, you know, it's not going to change anything for better or worse. I should probably not be working, but I've continued to work because I didn't want the girls, I didn't want my young daughters to see me as their last thought of me as the old guy who sat around with his air tubes unable to do anything, mm. you know. And so I thought... If I can work, nothing is the only one, but I would be shocked to hear that there is another actor my age working with air tubes uh, on a fairly regular basis, still doing movies and television. Right. You know, uh, I think it's kind of unusual. Uh, but I, I think I've continued, though, because I want them to have a, a, a good picture of me. I think it's better for their, everybody's health, everybody's mental health. That dad is still alive and he's still out there, and you know, people are still asking. He's still in demand. People still offer him roles. I think it's all to the good. It's all for your daughters. It's all for my daughters, yeah. But I, but I, I say I don't need to work at this point. But it, hey, it's fun. 
to get out there and meet some of the younger people that are coming up now. And, and look, I am an actor. It's still, I do enjoy it, you know. And uh, it is, being an actor is fun. It's a fun job. Let's face it. I mean, like, it is a fun job. No doubt about that. You know, unless you're on a, uh, a long-running TV series, which, which I never was on, by the way. I thought about that a lot, too, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, I think I think it's good. You kept it's it probably varied. good. You kept it varied. Yeah, because if I'd been on one that went for eight or ten years, we'd be very very rich. We're not very rich. Mm-hmm. We're okay. Uh, we're going to be able to put two girls through college without taking any student loans. We can do that. I think it's better this way that that we weren't living isolated somewhere in Brentwood or or Beverly Hills or somewhere with a eight thousand square foot house and a, I don't know. After 85 years of living, is there something you still want to do that you haven't? That I still want to do? Yeah, well, I just want there to be um, more roles that allow me to use uh, my my range and so on. I wasn't just talking about the work. Well, I want to to see my gals get through college, and uh, I want to make sure that Holly has enough to uh, money to get. I mean, it's only, and I want, I want the uh, Trump thing to go away. Um, that's um, that's kind of the preoccupation of my life right now is fear for what, what's going on, what, what's going to be left of the world. That's really where I am now, uh, hoping that we can get, you know, from a purely selfish point of view, I'd like to get my girls through college before everything collapses. I don't know if that's going to happen or not though right the collapse seems almost certain in some way and i don't know about getting him to college in time though anna still has a year and a half to go the older girl so we have a ways to go yet i guess my last question and the only thing i feel like is the natural thing to ask here is are you happy with how it's all played out i am happy i am happy I say I just I just wish it wasn't coming to a close. What may be some final years left of uh, the democratic ideals that we want to believe in, mm. we we're trying to believe in. Yeah, my hopes are with the uh, with the republic, and of course with my children. Well, I don't know how the next few years are going to play out. I'm I'm as uh, horrified and scared as uh, you seem to be. Do you do you? Now, do you, do you have a publication that you put out, or, or are you employed by anybody? <laughs> we can talk about this after, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do freelance writing, yeah. I do, so I write for a whole bunch of places, yeah. Why, why do you ask? Oh, well, I'm just concerned because he's, they're going after the press. Right. Uh, and whatever elements of the press that they think are threatening. Um, I guess what I was trying to... I don't know what exactly I'm trying to articulate, but... Your daughter is the same age as I am. Just I, about. Yeah. She'll be 21 in April, yeah. Yeah. What do you see in her? Because I think my guess is that you see someone you're probably pretty proud of. And the future hangs in the balance right now, but it also hangs on the shoulders and rests on the shoulders of my generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, have faith in us. Yeah, well, she's she's a she's very committed. She's she's an idealist, 
she's an idealist trying to change the world, which a lot of young people are in their way, however they go about it. Um, the younger girl, she's too young yet. We, we haven't pressed her to any future yet. Um, but Anna seems to be on her way to something. I don't know what. Anna also is a um, definitely a, a, a kind of an alpha personality. So um, wherever she goes, she will be taking on leadership responsibilities. She can't help it. I mean, she can't help herself. Mm. You know, I mean, she walks in and she wants to know, you know, where is it? Where do I put it? And how many of it do I need? And and how many do you want? And oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Okay. I mean, she—that's her personality. She will. I mean, she's not like, not like egregious, takeover, condescending. She has a natural ability to just take on the responsibility in a group, and and do it with such uh, passion and organization. And it's like you say, I'm glad somebody is willing to take all that on, right? So whatever she does. She will be making her contribution wherever, at whatever level. So, yeah, I feel really good about, about Anna. So the future is not so bad. Well, the future as we see it here in this little corner, yeah, but there's, it's the bigger one that I'm worried about. My older daughter uh, is a, works with the church in New Jersey where she lives. And um, my other daughter... My younger, older daughter, the one who was just 60 two weeks ago, uh, she's a high school teacher, literature. Everybody's doing well. I have uh, four grandchildren. I think you've done all you can. Hey, my little corner, I did as well in my little corner as I could. You know, just an anecdote from uh, Heart 8. Robert Elswit was the, uh, was the DP on that. And already a recognized DP since then. I think he's won an Academy Award. He and Paul got into it on set uh, about something having to do with the lighting. And Elswit was very helpful to Paul in the filming of Art 8, as a DP often is to a young director, in saying, uh, that's not going to work. You know, what you're doing there is great, but it's not going to work. You can't edit that. Move it over here, yeah, that'll work. Move it over there, put it up there. But right here where you want it, not going to work because you can't edit it with what you've got before and after. So anyway, they got into one of these. It got so serious that I thought it was going to end up either with the two of them fighting, literally grappling on the floor, or that Elswit was going to walk out. It reached the point where Elswit basically said, as a professional director of photography. I can't go on with the movie, if you put it there. He said, it, it's so ridiculous. It made me look like such an idiot. Right. Somebody else sees this. Didn't want to sully his name. Yeah. It really got, I mean, it was heavy. Really heavy. And Paul is making his statement, saying, well, you know, too bad, fine. This way I'm going to shoot it. At a certain point, I couldn't believe it when it happened. Ellsworth backed down. I could not believe it. Later on, I asked Ellswood, I said, I thought you were going to quit. He said, I thought I was too. I said, well, why didn't you? He said, I realized the reason I took the script in the first place, that he's a genius. And he said, you know, I thought, what do I know? 
he wants to shoot her from that angle. He probably knows something I don't know. He's probably right. I'm probably wrong. And it's so funny because that was the attitude that I took on some of the things with Paul when I didn't agree with the direction. And I thought, wait a minute, this is not this is not an appropriate thing to do here. But hey, he's obviously not an ordinary person. He's not, you know, this is not an ordinary director. It's mm-hmm. not a guy who went to the NYU film school and did uh, five student films and is now um, and never directed a play. Um, Sometimes it doesn't make sense, you know. But he he had a gift, you know. Sometimes, uh, and someone has said this on the podcast before, but sometimes life is a little bit like that scene in Magnolia, just rains frogs. Rains frogs, right? <laughs> and you actually said it in, in earlier. You you were mentioning life is chaotic. Yeah, the order is uncertain. Absolutely, and things just happen. It's just jumbling all these cards together, throwing them down, see how they lie. Oh, it's interesting. Hmm, who would have thought that? Who would have thought? Hmm? Well, uh, I'm glad the cards were put down in a place where you and I got to talk. Great. Great. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. My, uh, my pleasure, really. Well, there it is. Special thanks this week to Chris Schmidt at Paradigm for fielding my calls when we were trying to arrange this one. This wouldn't have happened without our help. There are dozens of Philip Baker Hall movies to watch from his career. Right now, Boogie Nights and All Good Things are currently streaming on Netflix. Also, keep an eye out for movies like Person to Person and The Last Word as they receive distribution in 2017. And lastly, a big thanks to Philip for sharing part of his life on this show. If today's Talk Easy was enjoyable, there's a good chance you'll like our past conversations with folks like Robert Forrester, Alan Arkin, Zoe Kazan, and Melanie Linsky. In 2017, we're calling on listeners of the show to help spread the word by sharing it with someone who you think may like it. Word of mouth really is the best way for an independent program like ours to grow. So thank you in advance for paying it forward. As always... You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop me a line about the show or anything else, feel free to do so at sam at talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at TalkEasyPod, as well as our website, www.talkeasypod.com. As we announced earlier this week, we're doing a live show next week at South by Southwest. If you're in Austin or coming down for the festival, Please feel free to reach out and uh, we'll make sure that you can get a seat to attend. More info on all that coming soon. Our music this week is by Jin Sang and Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer. And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.